Today I'm joined by Adam Lowes and we're going to be discussing A Bittersweet Life from 2005. It is written and directed by Ji Woon Kim and it stars Byung Hun Lee as Sun Woo, a mob enforcer that defies his boss's orders and, after nearly being executed, embarks on a mission of revenge. So, Adam, I wanted you to see this. Um, this film is one I saw at the time. It was part of the kind of new Korean cinema that for me started with JSA um, and all of those kind of early noughties movies. Um, and this one, whenever, uh, obviously Parasite won the Oscar for Best Picture. And whenever people talk about Korean movies, I always say, have you seen A Bittersweet Life? And people always say, no. So I've been recommending it for ages, but I haven't had anyone to talk to about it. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you've seen it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was fantastic. It kind of flew by my radar as well, weirdly. Do you know when it was released in the UK cinemas? Because I kind of I moved to London in June 2005. I'm wondering if I missed it. I think I saw it on DVD. Right. Uh, I don't. I know it didn't get a theatrical release in the states, um, and I'm not sure. I definitely didn't see it in the cinema here. I saw it on, on disc. It was part of the Tartan Extreme, the iconic Tartan Extreme. Now I loved it. I'd heard of. Gene Moon Kim before I I think I'd seen I hadn't seen any the only one of I'd seen of his work was his was his American um The Last Stand. Yeah, the Schwarzenegger sort of I thought um Byung Hun Lee was incredible in it. He's really good, isn't he? Real like incredible screen presence. Yeah. Yeah. And again, he's someone that's been snared by Hollywood. He was in the Magnificent Seven, wasn't he? And he played like Storm Shadow in G.I. Joe, yeah. didn't he? So yeah, and, you know, not much uh, diversity. Uh, other no. than being the sort of diverse character. Yeah, exactly. It's another lack of imagination. But he's, yeah, he's incredible in this. Really is. Yeah, that's it. He kind of does, you know, all of the physical stuff really convincingly. But I think he really, like, grounds the movie with, with a kind of heart and soul. So one thing I wanted to ask you, because it's, like I say, it's a movie I've seen a few times. And I have this kind of theory about it that doesn't pop up in any of the reviews that i've read for it or any of the kind of criticisms of it um and that is that the film all takes place in sun Wu's imagination two things that made me think that are the um the zen buddhist quotes that bookend the film right and also that um i should probably flag up as a huge spoiler but um that sequence at the end after the huge gunfight, we get another Buddhist quote, and then we get him looking at his own reflection in the glass, and then shadow boxing in the glass as the kind of credits roll. And for me, that the combination of those two things, I think the Buddhist quote says something like, "The dream I had can't come true," which you could read as him, you know, never finding someone to love in this life, or that he, you know, he's not a kind of mob enforcer; he's maybe just you know, the maitre d' or something like that of this restaurant, because a lot of the film doesn't make sense. There's quite a few sort of narrative gaps in it. And I just always read it that it was just in his imagination. That's that's quite an interesting reading. And now that you've sort of said about it, it's getting my mind working because that shot where he talks about where he's looking in the mirror and he's kind of shadow boxing and he kind of laughs it off, doesn't he? As if he's, he's pretending yeah. to be this kind of hard guy. But that's, that's lifted from a moment you don't see from a scene near the beginning that it's a sort of continuation. Yeah, that's right. And it's just before he kind of, it's it's before he, he greets those guys that have overstayed the welcome and kind of kicks her ass. 
Well, actually, oh, is it just after? Is it just today, after? It's just after, yeah. So, oh, right. So that uh, kind of so that sort of scuppers it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. In my mind, I'd always remembered it being uh, him having the espresso at the same time as he's having the uh, the dolce, the little dessert there at the beginning. Um, so that's the only thing that sort of throws a spanner in the works for that yeah, theory. But I'm, I'm still going to push it. Yeah, no, that's a shame because it would. You'd think the filmmaker might have thought about rejigging that slightly just just to kind of push that like you say that ambiguity there is a director's cut which i haven't seen and they say it's only 30 seconds longer but he does rejig some of the scenes so perhaps uh, yes, that's sort of clearer or, or more, yeah. more ambiguous in that um i just i was wondering today why there wasn't a uk blu-ray but there is a korean blu-ray that has english subtitles so i think i'm gonna track that down yeah, that's definitely Probably should worth. have done it before we recorded. <laughs> yeah, but I do like that theory. Then when you look at the rest of the film, it kind of plays out as a sort of male fantasy wish fulfillment, doesn't it? You know, it's this yeah. idea that, you know, at any given moment, we're going to plunge ourselves into some chaotic battle for our, you know, our identity and our pride and, you know, all of our kind of moral codes, which, you know, when all of us are tested, you know, we generally we fail in those situations. So, uh, yeah, just I just read it as this kind of male wish fulfillment fantasy. Interesting, interesting. And you know, there is quite a, f- a few cliches it, like scattered across exactly. the film, which you could again account for it being, you know, a lack like of a imagination. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. On the on the part of the the daydreaming protagonist. I just wanted to go back to what you said about him when he's eating his dessert because there's a lot of times in, in this film where food's kind of on display, isn't it? And it's it's just interesting how it's used in terms of inter- how the characters interact. So there's that moment there where he, he kind of finishes his dessert and then I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but when he first we first meet the, the mob boss, Mr. Kang, the, the two of them are eating together, aren't they? Oh, yeah, that's nice. It's, yeah, I it's, think it's supposed to be like lunch or dinner, but Kang comes out hammered, doesn't he? He's definitely yeah. hit, hitting the wine. But it's it's just it's a lovely kind of display of food, isn't it? And it's it's almost like a banquet, and they're just kind of nonchalantly sort of chomping away whilst chatting about the yeah, yeah. the business at hand. Jumping back then, somewhere he's completely kind of, and again, this this filters into your idea of of suggestion that it's a fantasy. You know, he's he's a very cool, calm sort of professional, completely unruffled early on. We're introduced to him quite quickly um, in his restaurant, where he seems to be the manager, the enforcer. Um, and there's trouble in the bar downstairs, which another lackey is supposed to be managing, but is nipped out. And so he goes down and uh, he intercepts three kind of thugs, mob thugs, that have, like you say, overstayed their welcome. And it's the first scene where we get to see him kind of kick ass quite spectacularly. I've got in my notes here, no-nonsense enforcer. And it's, you know, the the fight itself, there's a real sort of... I mean, there's a precision throughout, isn't there? When when he's kind of walking down to meet them, there's the, the sort of smooth camera work gliding past him and sort of, tr- you know, it reflects his kind of demeanour, doesn't it? Yeah, and, the, you know, the camera work in, in the whole film is very kind of solid and very precise. Yeah, so he, he basically kicks his guy's ass, doesn't he? And when I watched this moment in the film, I wasn't quite sure which way it was going to go. I, I thought it might be kind of a bit more sort of mindless. There's a very similar scene in an Indonesian movie on Netflix called The Night Comes For Us, and it's got uh, Iko Uwais and Joe Talson, Taslim in it. Iko's scene starts with him basically kicking ass as a kind of nightclub enforcer um, and, like, destroying three guys 
in a private booth exactly the same as this but it's more brutal and that film has that kind of unrelenting sort of john wick st- uh, approach to the action where it just it, it's not numbing you know it, it's um it's quite uh cinematic to watch but it, it doesn't have the kind of grounding that this has and i think like you say this scene sets up the tone for all of the action and violence that comes you know it's it is stylish but it also feels quite realistic it's quite brutal and messy and unpredictable yeah, yeah. which we'll see we'll talk about it later on but we'll, we'll, that really comes to the fore in the in them um, someone's escape he kicks his guy's ass and then this is when the sort of plot machinations kind of start he goes to meet his mob boss his mob boss is this kind of seen it all older chap well, he's not too old but he's a little, he's, he's a good sort of decade or two older than Someone. Yeah, and it it feels like they have a kind of mentor-student relationship, yeah. which, again, mirrors the kind of Buddhist quotes that we get at the beginning and the end of the film. Mr. Kang's seeing this. He's got this younger girlfriend who he suspects maybe she may be seeing. She's like a trophy look. Like. It's his mistress, isn't it? Yeah, he? So yeah. He's, he's married. He has a mistress, and he thinks his mistress might be having an affair. So he, he asks Sun Wu to essentially stalk her, really. <laughs> That's how yeah. it kind of progresses yeah because um, he's away isn't he in shanghai for yeah, three days yeah. so he's like you know follow her every move and if she is being unfaithful kill her and it's this scene that we're also introduced to uh, a gentleman called Munsuk, who is a bit of a side antagonist really isn't he yeah he's kind of the um friend enemy isn't he that's kind of very close but also he's got his eye on sun Wu's position in the hierarchy but he's he's kind of the opposite isn't he he's very sort of uncouth yeah that's he just it. kind of he kind of bulldozes in starts helping himself to like the food and he's not really been invited and he doesn't conduct himself in a no. professional manner does he no. which is a kind of phrase that keeps coming up all the way through the film about people's levels of professionalism in matters of criminality um and he basically gets booted out doesn't he by mr kang just sends him on his way and the whole sort of get together between um sun Woom and mr kang it's all it's really kind of amicable and laid back isn't it but there's a really interesting moment when the sort of chat's finished and he's accompanying him to the and sun Woom's accompanying mr kang to the car and mr kang sort of loses his foot in a little bit isn't he? And, he, and he grabs um sun Woom quite roughly and pulls him towards it he's sat in the car and he kind of pulls him towards him and he asks him have you ever been in love and i just thought that was kind of an interesting you know you like you said you're seeing this initially seeing this sort of crime boss who's got sort of a, almost a paternal sort of bond with this his enforcer but then there's just something about that that instant where he kind of grabs him and pulls him towards him that feels kind of threatening and he's kind of, he's, he's almost kind of saying look the girl that you're kind of marking she's she's beautiful you know you're gonna get your head turned just remember that she's my property that's what i read from him anyway yeah yeah that's that's a good one i mean i was wondering whether kang was saying have you ever been in love because kang is and that's made him vulnerable right so that's that's kind of exposed him to um it's a bit like uh neil mccauley in uh heat isn't it you know this idea that you you should be professional and not have any attachments you can't walk away from yeah yeah. and those make make you vulnerable Kang also says to Sun Wu during their uh, their long boozy lunch that years of hard work can be undone with one mistake, which is sort of the uh, you know the point of the f- the film, isn't it? He's kind of foreshadowing what's come, isn't he? Really nicely uh, photographed opening scenes, aren't they? You know, yeah. just the the style and the tempo. You know, for me, I, by this point, I was completely sold on the movie. Yeah. You know, the fact that it really just slows down for a, 
conversation about vulnerability. I thought that was that was really really amazing. Yeah, it's beautifully done. And I wanted to say something earlier. It's the kind of film, it's the kind of cinematic work where you can follow the story visually, isn't it? This is uh, the next day, and someone who's got to meet um, Mr. Kang's piece on the side, who is called Hisu. He arrives, doesn't he, with a present. And yes. what I really love about that sequence is he steps out of the car, and then there's this kind of wind that blows across him, you know, this idea that there's a storm coming. <laughs> I thought that was really nice, sort of kind of. Maybe a little heavy-handed, but like really sort of visually poetic as well. I just really like yeah. that. So he visits in her apartment. I think there's an attraction right away. Well, I don't know if there's an attraction from her, and I think for oh, yes. him, sorry, it's... yeah, I should, yeah, it's from him definitely. There's there's those sort of furtive glances in there from his behalf. But I think for him, it like it's probably been you know he's been working for Kang for seven years, and it's probably been at least seven years since he's been in somebody else's house and sat with them without being professional you know without being on duty and he's kind of on duty here but she's not you know she's just being herself it sort of disarms him a little bit and he's quite captivated by just watching her moving around her house you know brushing hair from her ears changing her shoes she's just very open with sharing her space with him and i think that sort of intimacy catches him by surprise it's quite intoxicating for him yeah that's it giddy he's giddy isn't he yeah he forgets his keys you know he's quite quite sort of disarmed by it all immediately sort of the person that he's been tasked to look after mm-hmm. and it's not going the way yeah. mr kang <laughs> yeah who placed his almost instructions yeah yeah <laughs> so we next see if if i'm correct we next see sort of Monsuk again, who's kind of floating between a couple of gangs, isn't he? He's got his sort of finger in a few pies in terms of the underworld. So the guys that um, Sun beats up at the beginning are from another gang run by Mr. Is it Bake or Beak? I said Beak. Yeah. Bayek. Bayek. Mr. Bayek. So let's call him Mr. Bayek. 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 Yeah, Moon is um, moonlighting, isn't he? It feels like he's trying to sort of make connections with other gangs, other yeah. rival gangs, and Mr. Bake's gang get beaten up in the beginning, and then he is hassling Moon to get an apology from Sun for beating them up. Which is not going to happen. No, but I think Bayek, we do meet him. I don't know if we meet him at this point, but you know, we see him like quite frustrated with his own inept gang where he batters one of them with a telephone and yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, just that, like, that immediate followed this, this scene where Sun Wu's like, he's really stubborn. He's like, Look, I'm not apologising. <laughs> yeah, simple yeah, as that. It. And there's a kind of there's an arrogance. There's a little, there's an arrogance about him as well, isn't there? A little bit. As far as he's concerned, they they were overstaying their welcome. Yeah, they should have left ages ago, and that and that's it. You know, that's that's the end of it as far as he's concerned. So we see um, Bayek after this, and like you say, he's um, he's pretty psychotic. <laughs> One of his kind of underlings kind of laughs at him on the phone and he beats him rather severely. Yeah, he batters him with the phone and then comes around the desk and gives him a good kicking on the floor, doesn't he? And then he gets another henchman to hand him a phone and the guy just opens it and puts it up to his ear, doesn't he? He's like, what, what the fuck am I going to do with that? <laughs> so what we have is this scene with um, Sun and Hisu and then her phone rings while he's there and they're looking for it under the cushions. That's right. And then she asks him to leave, and he waits outside, and her date turns up. I thought for a moment it was going to be like, you know, a, a brother or a cousin or something sort of innocent, um, but no, I think it's actually like 
it's a dude that she's seeing on the side and they go out um for the whole night don't they and sun shadows them and then he goes home and we see him in his kind of lonely apartment you know he sleeps on the sofa you know it's, i don't know i don't know if it's a one if it's a bed sit basically but he's just got cans piled up on the side um sleeps on the sofa yeah that's it. stuff still in boxes so you know he has quite a kind of he has no life outside of work basically and that's when he receives a call from hisu and then we're on to another eating scene with the two of them that go out to a restaurant yeah it's quite strange because she's just phoned him to hang out basically hasn't she because she didn't want to eat lunch on her own and then he spends the afternoon with her and goes with her to a uh what looks like uh, an orchestra rehearsal where she plays the cello I think this is where he kind of really falls for it, doesn't he? He's kind of been really entranced by her performance, captivated. I think the uh, conductor says that it's a, a tune called Romance and that they have to start nice and soft. Um, and she laughs at that. And then he's, Sun Wu is just watching through the glass partition as they rehearse. Well, I've wrote here, she, like, in my notes, she has him sussed during the, during the uh, restaurant, the eating scene, so maybe she's kind of cotton on that he's... You'd think she's using that though to her, her advantage, or possibly you'd not think she knows how much danger she's in. Maybe I, I wanted to. That for me, this is we can talk about it now, but for me, this is the only kind of weak part of the film. I think her character's pretty underdeveloped throughout, really. That suits me because it's kind of feeds into my male fantasy, uh, you know, theory about the film. Otherwise, it is just a, a poorly written female character in a movie. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't have very much to do does she her appeal is bullet pointed for us you know yeah. we, we see her sort of sashaying around her apartment we see her seductively eating some cream and then we see her playing the cellos we get a scene you know in a short while where um sun Wu uh, busts into her house when she's with her her kind of other fella she talks about love so you know in, in those three scenes we kind of we, that's it. That's all we get of her character. That yeah. she's seductive and sexy. That she's cultured, um, and that she has a big heart. And oh, and she likes table lamps. Yeah, for some reason, bizarre <laughs> kind of fetish. And that's kind of that's her, isn't it? In terms of her presence it, yeah. in the film, isn't it? Yeah, we, we I can mean, talk. I mean, yeah, she, she. There's a couple. Of, we can talk about it as well later on. There's a couple of moments where she kind of drops in. Yeah, it's physically. almost just to sort of remind us that she was part of the story though you know she, she doesn't have anything else to do from yeah. the midway point but all that being said you know she is a, a good kind of screen enigmatic screen yeah. presence she definitely has all of that sun Wu nips out to see um mon suk and bayak doesn't he yeah it's interesting because uh, Bayek does apologize and says, "Oh, look, I'm sorry for the misunderstanding, you know, with with my men." So he does offer an olive branch. Again, the stubbornness in some way is just he, he won't accept it, will he? And I think this it, it kind of irks him that he's kind of had to do that. And then if he go, he he basically goes back to see um, he Sue. She's finished her recording. She's sat waiting. What you, who you think she's waiting for some way? But and he's he's walking towards and before she can kind of see him. Her other lover steps out, doesn't he? And they kind of... He turns away from Hisu before she gets to see him returning to uh, where she was doing her rehearsal. Um, and he leaves, gets in the car and drives away. And then 
I think there's that point where he realizes actually he's got a job to do and he's he's being irresponsible um, to Mr. Kang. Um, do you think there's a bit of jealousy there as well because because of that moment where, or do you think he's that's just kind of that's just kind right. of he snapped out of it a little bit and just like you I say, think, he's well, I think he's, back. he's slightly off piece, isn't he? Going back to see her, you know, that's he's doing that for himself. You know, he's not doing that. She didn't ask him to help. Yeah. Mr. Kang didn't give him the instruction. He's doing it for himself. Um, and when he gets there, she's with somebody else. And so he leaves quite quickly. And then I think he has the realization that he's supposed to be working for Mr. Kang and keeping an eye on this woman. So he does that like mental U-turn in the middle of the road. <laughs> yeah. and goes back to her, back to her house. So there's a bit of a skirmish there between um, him and her lover. Yeah, it's a beautiful kick there, isn't it? There's a point where he runs around the back of the sofa and then just does this beautiful back kick from a really high vantage point and, and clocks him flying across the head. <laughs> yeah. yes. But it's like such a beautiful shot, isn't it? And such yeah. a really kind of impact. It makes your teeth rattle. It's such a, a big impact, that kick. So like a really beautiful shot that I thought. So yeah, um, so someone who's about to kind of make that call to Mr. Kang and basically end it all, end both of their lives, and ultimately decides to spare them both. And obviously, this is going to have disastrous repercussions. He lets them go, doesn't he? Instead of killing them or reporting them to Mr. Kang, he lets them both go, but under the condition that they forget everything about their relationship, that they never see each other again, that they bury their love and. After the lover has gone, he's left alone with Hisu. And he's trying to explain to her that he's done it for her own good. And she just isn't interested at all. Yeah, so there's a scene after that as well where he's kind of... He's driving back home and he has to deal with sort of an unruly motorist and his passenger. That's a really (laughs) nice, really nice Proper little road rage (laughs) incident, doesn't he? He's been wound up quite tight by the uh, the evening, so this gives him his little release, doesn't he? Some punks spitting water at his car, and he just pulls them over on the motorway and hands out a beat down. Yes, beautifully done in his ice cold mm-hmm. style. But it, it, again, it feels kind of—I mean, it's not realistic, but it's grounded. It's—it's it's not like overly complex as a fight. You know, he no. kicks one guy into the door and. Another guy just kind of punches him a couple of times and then he's down, which yeah, I think that, you know, there is a danger with action sequences of them being so elaborate that yeah, you, they, d- they, you, you disengage slightly from what's happening to the characters and you, you kind of pull back to watch the spectacle. And I think with this film, it's always measured enough that it's always Sun Woo that's fighting. You know, you never feel any of the stunts. You just feel like it's, it's a character battling. But that also it also feeds into what you talk about, about the reality about it as well that he it's you know he, he dispatches them quite swiftly as well because once he's you know once you've had a blow from him you're not going to get back up are you? Let's be yeah, yeah, but uh, you know if you ever watch any of those kind of YouTube compilation fights of people being knocked out Spacked in the street, out, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I I generally don't, but I've seen a few, you know, and yeah, it's grim, you know, it's yeah. that thing that fights in the street uh, you know people get their skulls cracked open from being knocked out standing up by the time they hit the ground you know that's that's them isn't it basically once again he's been warned of upsetting them um, back isn't he basically apolog- apologize or, or else 
Yeah, so he gets home into the car park at his house, and there's a sort of weird dude dressed a bit like Liam Gallagher, isn't there? Yeah, he's got he's that. Just, yeah. <laughs> hey, mate. Uh, and he comes up and says, like, you've got one more chance to apologize. Just say three words. I was wrong. And he's like, go fuck yourself, yeah. isn't he? Like, we get Ken coming home, and he goes straight to Hisu's house. And straight away, he knows something's wrong. She's talking yeah. about packing up and leaving, selling the house, leaving the city, you know, and he just, like, is like, what's going on? You know, he suspects straight away, doesn't he? Something's changed. I mean, they didn't. she didn't really do... She didn't put any effort in keeping that sort of pretense up, did she? Yeah, well, <laughs> I think, you know, there's this idea that he's interfering too much in her life, considering she's a mistress. Yeah. You say mistress, sometimes that gives the impression of kind of a one-dimensional sort of female, doesn't it? That's just in it for the. But she's, you know, she's she she. In fact, she's kind of she's not your sort of atypical mistress, is she? In the sense that she's quite artistically inclined, she's quite delicate. Yeah, but she doesn't really she doesn't really fit that sort of archetype, does she? No, but also she's not like a trophy. Nobody else knows about her. She's a secret. You know, the only person that's been told is Sun Wu, and. You know he's 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 messed up his kind of interaction with her. So what follows after this is a really wonderful moment of kind of surprise and suspense. Yeah, it's really good. So good. So we're back at somebody's apartment. He's feeling really sorry for himself. Yeah, isn't he's he? very he's kind sort of, of lonely. Yeah, he nip, nips to the offy, doesn't he? To get <laughs> yeah. surprisingly to get like five Gu- cans Guinness. of Guinness. <laughs> yeah, and some peanuts. It was just a weird. You know, I was ex- expecting to see some kind of like exotic korean beer yeah. that's really hard to find um but you might like track it down so you could say oh i'm drinking the same beer as the guy from a bittersweet life and instead he comes home with like some tins of guinness whatever floats your boat really so he's kind of he's laying on um his sofa again kind of feeling sorry for himself and he's kind of flicking the light on and off his knee so it's nice because we've seen him doing that before yeah. and we also uh witness he sue doing it when Mr. Kang's in her apartment. So there's yeah. like a little connection between yeah. them as well. It's, it maybe does like t- three or four times. And, you know, we, we're, in, we're in the dark. Pitches the, pitches the flat into darkness and then switches it back on. And we get another little detail from his apartment. It's really nice. You see like the empty cans yeah. and uh, the, the nutshells. So he's continually doing this with the light switch. And then maybe about the fourth or fifth time, you hear a kind of little rumble before, don't you? There's... When it's mm-hmm. when it's in dark, and you're like, I wonder what that is, and he switches it back on, and there's like four guys stood behind him, wielding yeah. sort of batons and knives and stuff, and you're like, and it's, holy shit! Again, credit to the film that you know they just come at him and overwhelm him and yeah. pin him down, and that's it. He, you know, he has no sort of comeback. Oh, he's from he's that. completely overpowered, isn't he? Completely. Yeah. And then uh, Liam Gallagher comes in and just like gives him one last. <laughs> kick to the head and knocks him out completely doesn't he this is it now isn't it this is point of no return yeah it sort of ramps up a gear and also um it does take on that slightly more cartoonish um character ever so slightly so yeah it's some some moves in trouble basically this is when you start some moves composure sort of you first see it kind of dropped on you which is, oh, fair yeah, enough, which is fair enough. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, this is some of the stuff I really love about it is that he's got a proper panic on. Yeah, like he he thinks this is the end. Like he throws up and everything, doesn't yeah, he? Like yeah. he's re- like really terrified, as you would be in that situation. Or there's no yeah. sort of. Yeah. I mean, I'd be doing worse than throwing up. Yeah, sort of, <laughs> she wouldn't be mopping just blood up. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I would be a disgrace in that situation. <laughs> yeah. Like. So yeah, he's he's almost killed, but um, j- like literally the sort of the last moment is spared by a phone call from none other than Mister Kang. Yeah, there's a really nice sequence here where they kind of they're just about to kill him, and that Liam Gallagher character has like all the knives, and he's got this sort of bloody. Uh, you're behind um, some plastic curtains. He's got all these bloody tools that he's going to bring out. And uh, Sun Wu says, you know, when my people find out about this, you know, you're not going to get away with it. And then uh, Bayek says, you know, your people don't know you're here. And then the phone rings and then they take him straight back to Mr. Kang, don't they? You know, you still feel like there is the kind of gangland hierarchy and a sort of respect between the gangs. But unfortunately for um, Sun Wu, Mr. Kang has got ideas of his own. Another lovely sequence though where um Sun Wu is ditched out of the uh the people carrier into the pouring rain with a yeah. bag over his head that he really struggles to take off, which just gives you that sort of thick moment as a viewer where you hold your breath and you're like, Get the fucking bag off his head. Yeah. Um and then when he finally gets it off and looks up, there's all these kind of umbrellas in the rain. You know, it's night. And then we see who's who he's face to face with and it's Mr. Kang. Yeah. And Munsik as well, who's kind of taken his, yeah. you know, he's, he's finally <laughs> taken... Yeah, a, he's on Mr. Kang's shoulder, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. So what follows this as well is he, they basically bury him alive. They toy with him, don't they? They bury him alive. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those sequences where, like, it's so beautifully crafted visually, but, like, really kind of badly written because you just have this thing where they're like, okay, you need to apologise Okay, I'll think about apologizing. Oh, no, now we're going to kill you. Okay, oh, you survived the execution. Are you going to apologize? You've got 15 minutes to apologize. <laughs> just sit over there and think about apologizing. It's just like, what's happening here? This is fucking really annoying. But, you know, it's full of tension and great kind of cinematic moments, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, the, I mean, I hasten to call it like Kill Bill-esque, that burial, but it, it's, it, it's much better than Kill Bill, isn't it, in terms of like... Yeah, well, it's not. It's not overwrought, is it? You know, no. You get a guy kind of in just two or three shots. A guy ditched into the mud, into a, a kind of shallow grave. You see the mud coming down onto him, overwhelming him, and then you just see the surface. It holds on that just for a few seconds, and then you see him emerge. Sort of hand breaks through, yeah. And yeah, and he's gasping for breath. They've already, yeah, they've broken his fingers, haven't they? As well, gasping for breath. And then as soon as he's out, he looks and they're all there going, oh, yeah, it was a bit too shallow, that one, wasn't it? And you're like, oh, fuck, that's really bad. Can you see a little bit of them? Um, I know it sounds a bit of a cliche, but can you see a bit of Tarantino comparisons here? The way that some who dresses, he's got that kind of reservoir um, dogs, hasn't he? He's got the sort of... It's the enforcer, enforcer wardrobe, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, but I think the film itself is influenced by cinema. You know, it, it's no coincidence that the title you know we get a translated title which is yeah. a bittersweet life but the korean title is a sweet vita, life yeah, yeah and the restaurant that they work in is la dolce vita and you know the music the score which is great it takes on influences from all over the world doesn't it depending on what the scene is you know if it's something that has a kind of slightly more western feel then you hear kind of you know, the uh, mariachi music and then uh, other stuff that's a bit more stylish. It has yeah. definitely a kind of Italian uh, Morricone kind of feel to it. And I think, you know, I think 
the comparison I would draw with Tarantino is that it's made by somebody that loves cinema, it feels like, you know, and has a different kind of discipline, a comparable aesthetic. Yeah, but fair enough. You're, you're much, um, much Ji-Woon Kim, he definitely likes his, his close-ups like Tarantino, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but not again. You know, used with great judgment. I think in this fight sequence, there's one point where Son Wu is pinned against the wall and he's looking around, and then we cut into this enormous Sergio Leone type close-up where it pans across his eyes as he's yeah. trying to make a decision yeah, on how so to fight his way out <laughs> onto the onto the escape scene, which is just wow, isn't it? Really, he's given a phone and told to sit in the corner and think about it for 15 minutes, and then phone the boss and apologize and what he does do is remove the battery from the phone and use it to batter split moon, yeah, yeah. Moon suck across the head with it i've got my notes here did they consciously want to top try and top the all boy all boy scene which is it's probably that's a bit of a dismissive thing to to say but at the same time there is there is some kind of parallels isn't there there's that kind of so basically um, some ways doing everything you can to kind of get out there and there's that kind of there's this, that same kind of animalistic sort of urge on his behalf yeah there's a sort of survival instinct that, and like bringing chaos you know again it doesn't have that it's not a slickly it's not a slickly choreographed is it in, in, in its own way that's it's, it that's it in its own way it's, it's beautifully done and beautifully choreographed but it hasn't got that same sort of precision has it it's a bit more it's very messy and that's that's what i love about it i love it that he's kind of gasping for breath like two minutes oh, in it's... you know blood pouring out of everywhere you know he's just like a complete mess from the outset you know it's brilliant fight two two people and then he's done you know he's got, he can't get, catch his breath and i love that stuff i think you know that's what if it is a kind of male wish fulfillment you know that's kind of I, you know i picture myself in that situation <laughs> like fighting my way out you know it, and i like yeah i would be fucking knackered like 10 seconds in and he's he's, he's using anything he can isn't he in terms of weapon he's, he's yeah, got like a ro- he's got rocks he picks up like the the burning like fire out and he, he picks up yeah. like a piece of wood breeze blocks flaming uh you know uh, bits of two by four and I think some of them got nails in because he like whacks people with it and it just sticks in <laughs> but there's no sort of gratuitous no. close-ups to that you're just like oh what's happened there oh my god that's got to be painful it's just ferocious isn't it there's a couple of shots as well where yeah. it's, it's so beautifully done but I think the camera's almost like strapped to his shoulder isn't it it's like yeah, a body mount, yeah. isn't it? But it's not a rear it's body not overused mount. at all. I think it there's only about two, three times. And I really love this sequence where he drags them into the um really narrow breeze block corridor yeah. just to sort of get, again give himself space to breathe and they just keep coming over the top, don't they? It's really good. But sometimes when you get fight scenes with kind of multiple attackers, there is that suspension of disbelief in terms of you know you know when you've got like a sort of there's about a line of six and they're kind of waiting to get in there but you don't really get that sense here do you it's done so well i don't know if it's just the way it's cut but it's that jcvd thing isn't it have you seen that show on amazon with jcvd do they, do they reference that sort of yeah no he's like uh right who's gonna go next <laughs> you know it's that sort of thing it's like oh you third on the right you have a go but i think it, it works as well with the reality of the scene where like you say he's yeah, you know yeah, totally. the, the, it's very narrow so they wouldn't have the chance to kind of surround him mm. anyway and, he, and i think he kind of subconsciously kind of mm. does that you know but he's trying to get yeah. out as well you know he's not he's not looking to destroy the entire gang he's trying to just yeah. get out find an escape route and go it's just yeah it's it's exhilarating isn't it yeah it's really cool and i, I love 
once he spots the guy with the car and he goes barreling out to him and kind of rugby tackles him onto the bonnet <laughs> of the car and steals the car but like drives into the warehouse and and it just ends with like the f- the funniest scene ever so so you kind of pull out and there's two guys it's a deeper yeah, grave, deeper grave for some and they're kind of they're observing what's going on the scene kind of sp- sp- speed away and one of them just says to the other guy he's like you know stop digging we're fucked <laughs> So Moon calls Kang to tell him that uh, Sun has escaped. Yeah. And that's where he kind of crushes the glass in his hand and has blood pouring out of his hand. So, I mean, now there's lots of kind of nice visual stuff. Um, but it does, it, you know, you could almost just go straight to the end sequence from here. Because yeah. it, it's just about adding, you know, we, we get a whole new set of characters just to add them into the sort of final battle. It gets very kind of... Tony Scott doesn't yeah. you know it's like oh we've got these guys these guys and now we've got these guys you know how's it all going to end it's like well they're all going to turn up and try and kill yeah. each other you know I, I get it I get it and we see uh, Bayek walking through loads and loads of doors on his way to a meeting <laughs> which is a really sort of weird kind of visual sequence and he this is a weird comparison but he reminds me of uh, John Leguizamo he has the same sort, yeah, of, sort of look yeah. and swagger and kind of you know physical arrogance and then suddenly like terror yeah. as well like he he's he you know he's another kind of brilliant actor i mean the whole cast in this film are, are really kind of exciting yeah. to watch aren't they and um the guy that plays Bayek, he's um he looks so different in all his other roles you know when you can kind of flick around oh, really? yeah he's a real sort of chameleon in terms of uh... he's pretty scary in this in places yeah. you know with his the scar that he has running from uh, the corner of his mouth across his cheek yeah. You know, it just feels like he, you know, he's pretty brutal. Yeah. Even um, Monsuk as well, because he's in uh, Memories of Murder, isn't he? So somewhere goes to buy all this sort of firepower that he's going to use for his revenge. And um, he, he buys it from this kind of schlubby looking arms dealer. It's quite eccentric, yeah. isn't he? He's wearing sunglasses and a fur coat and all of that stuff. Yeah, he looks a bit, he's a, looks like a bit of an old school sort of raver, doesn't he? So obviously alarm bells start to ring. They both and they both kind of they both sat there and they were there stripped down weapons, one magazine on the table. So it's basically a, a battle to see who can put the guns back together again and and shoot each other. And it, fortunately, it goes Sunwoo's way. And then we see a character, another character enters who I think is the arm dealer's brother. Yeah, that's that's what it says on the IMDb. Yeah, that's what I read that as well because because yeah. he phones up and says, "I've got your merchandise." And then I was like, "Who's this guy? Have I seen him before?" You know, you, I think when you're two thirds of the way through a Korean movie and somebody turns a corner and you're like, "Have I seen that bef- that guy before?" And you're like, "Shit, am I a racist? Can I not tell Koreans <laughs> apart? What's wrong with me?" So like, I definitely hit the pause and went on the IMDb and it's like, no, no, this is a new character that's coming in. He just turns up out of the blue, doesn't he? And if it is his brother, he's, he's pretty sort of, he shows, doesn't really show any emotion that he's... I think that, that may have been lost in translation, mm. that character's name. Mm. Maybe his name is like, because I think Bayek's first name is President. Yeah, so, President yeah. Bayek. Yeah. So I wonder if that other character's name isn't like, you know, brotherly love or something. Yeah, but they've just misinterpreted his name. His name was supposed to be brother, yeah. Yeah, then we get kind of um, stuff of Sun Woo driving around in uh, taxis and kind of trying to... I mean, he does kind of go and see everybody that we've seen throughout the film and tell them where he's going to (laughs) be and leaves his business card lying around. It's like, you know, if there's going to be a convergence, it's definitely something that he's manufactured. Yeah. And he leaves people alive that he should have executed. 
But yeah, I definitely would have shot like Liam Gallagher, that guy he left alive and he rocks up with his gang at, at the end. Sunwoo lures Bayek to an ice rink. Um, obviously yeah. with the idea of... I like him. this sequence oh, yeah, as well. Great. It's great. Sunwoo turns up, says to him, I think he's, he keeps questioning, you know, why me? Why is this happening to me? And just before Bayek gives him an answer, he reaches a little kind of ice pick in his pocket, doesn't he? And then stabs him like six or seven times in the guts and just like does him, man. So shocking. Absolutely. I've written that shocking, yeah. It kind of, it's a shocking moment in itself, but it kind of signals Sunwoo's fate as well. I mean, I think when I was watching it, my sort of mouth was agape because I was like, oh, jeez. You know, the hero's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the hero's <laughs> not going to kind of, he's not going to walk away sort of unharmed. He's not going to make, make it. it. Yeah, that's it. So he's kind of, Sunwoo still manages to kind of pull out his gun and he shoots um, and he kills um, Bayek. Yeah, we 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 see his, the other side to his character, uh, and he's you know he looks really kind of sad and pathetic. He's he's kind of slipping around the ice, isn't he? Clumsily, sort of trying to compose himself. It's a very nice execution, <laughs> is what I want to say. Where he, you know he shoots him in the in the leg, doesn't he? And then shoots him kind of in in the kidneys, and then shoots him again in the kidneys when he stands up, you know, and he gets kind of blasted, and then he's slipping on the ice and collapsing, yeah. and then you know. I mean, it's ice. As the blood comes out, you get this really kind of lovely, high contrast image of a man bleeding to death, icy blue, deep crimson yeah. red. You know, it's, it's it's really kind of cinematic and dramatic. Absolutely. This signals to Mr. Kang that Sun Wu's on the way to him. Well, he phones yeah. him, doesn't he? Oh, he does, yeah. Sorry, he does. Sun yeah, Wu does, phones does. him, says, yeah, hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm coming just in case. I don't know what you're up to tonight, yeah. but... Yeah, I'll, I'll come and meet you at the restaurant for a massacre. So before that kind of, before he heads to the restaurant slash nightclub slash hotel, this is the last time we see um, Hisu, isn't he? delivers a box. Oh, no, no, sorry. He he doesn't personally, does he? She receives a box. I wouldn't be surprised if this is the stuff that the director's cut doesn't address. There's a weird sort of sequence here where it looks like Hisu's leaving and this is the last we see of her and she's escaped the carnage and she's not involved and... And then we see her go back to her own flat and pick up the present, which is the desk lamp. Um, and then she has a housemate who we've never <laughs> seen before. Um, and then um, Sun Wu's been phoning her and she doesn't answer. And then right at the end, she picks up the phone. But then after that, we see her unwrapping the, the lovely desk lamp that, he, that he's bought her as a sort of going away present. And that stuff felt just a little bit disjointed, yeah. as if you know a couple of shots had been dropped in the wrong place, and they were just like, "Fuck it, we have to, we have to print it now. Let's, let's get it out." Some who heads to the, to the nightclub. I think we get a little kind of Scorsese moment here with the combination of him looking at himself in the mirror to sort of pep himself up and just kind of get on with the job, and then the, the murder of Moonsuck that we get in the in the kind of dirty corridor definitely feels a bit like when uh, Travis shoots is it Sport? Yeah. Harvey yeah. Keitel plays? When he shoots him you know there's that kind of quite rough jump cut right in the middle of his uh, shooting. Just going back to the kind of men's room where he's um, trying to patch himself up there's a there's a moment where you, you kind of see close above his shirt and he's just gushing blood isn't it? And there's a look that, that when he looks in the mirror I thought it was quite interesting there's a look of sort of resignation in his eyes that he knows that the end is, is quite near. And it reminded me a little bit 
I don't know why, but you know, there's a, there's a moment in Broad and Silver 99, literally just before the end, where Vince Vaughn's speaking to like a fellow inmate. He's, at the, he's, at, he's near Cellbot 99, and they're talking about his imminent, the birth of his imminent boy, and he kind of has a little bit of a breakdown. And you know that, that he's never going to see, oh, yeah, you know, okay. there's like a glimpse of him realizing that this is end and he's never going to see his son. And I just thought it was like, it just mm-hmm. reminded me of that. Very profound. profound. Mun Sick doesn't kind of. No, there is a really cool shot of him where he's been shot a couple of times and he's laying on the floor and he's bleeding and he's got snot coming out of his nose and tears coming out of his eyes. It's really like it's really haunting. You know, there's no kind of bravery or no kind of real emotion other than just this kind of quiet terror. We get a nice shot uh, in a lift where. we don't even see him killing everyone. He's just sur- surrounded by the bodies and then comes out, blasts a few more people and then confronts Kang, doesn't he? Which is a kind of, it's a nice moment. I think there's, there's definitely something about um, Sun Wu just saying, why why is this happening? And you see that there's a jealousy maybe from Kang that he doesn't articulate, but he sees that maybe there was some kind of connection between Sun Wu and Hisu. I think this is... Um this kind of chat is uh, by Young Hunley's sort of, this is his like really sort of meaty. It's yeah, a showreel moment. it is. <laughs> really good. He doesn't really understand after all those kind of years of unwaving loyalty that he's been like fucked over so badly. He's heartbroken, isn't he? And I don't think he's understood how jealous Kang is, you know. When Kang said to Sun Wu that if Hisu is seeing someone else that he has to kill them and he's like oh I kind of are you sure are you sure boss <laughs> yeah. and he's like you know um you know when it comes to matters of the heart you know you have to be this decisive i think he's saying something along those lines and i think that's still what informs all of his decisions yeah. you know th- this idea that there's a connection between sun Wu and hisu to him that's not acceptable and <laughs> that's why he was buried alive yeah. you know I'm surprised he let uh, Hisu leave. Though. Yeah. Maybe he couldn't do it with Hisu because he's quite intimidating when he's in her house. But maybe maybe he just loves her too much to pull it's the trigger lumps, himself. That's why he sort of yeah, outsourced it. So the ensuing battle as well. After, so, he, yeah, he, he shoots Mr. Kang. Yeah, he gives yeah. up, doesn't he? Waiting for an answer, just executes him. Which is, you know, he, he kind of... It's one of those moments where you have to kind of just accept that it's a little bit... Cause, Obviously, there's all these guys waiting in the wings that could just take him out after that with a single shot. Well, there's kind of a, a pregnant pause, isn't there, after Kang gets shot. And then Sun Wu gets shot in the he head. Does. And you think that might be it. But this is when this is when the bloodshed like bloodshed like truly begins, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's a proper kind of you know, very stylish, ultra violent battle, isn't it? You know, I do love the sound design. I think the the way the kind of guns are clanking, you really hear their mechanics is it's not a very kind of slick sounding scene it's a very kind of noisy Hectic, yeah but what you said earlier when you referenced tony scott there's definitely an element of that isn't it it's that sort of mexican standoff like to the nth degree isn't it yeah i mean i think tony scott did that three or four times in his movies didn't he but you know i quite like it when you see a bunch of people turning up or just shooting at each other for no reason yeah but we still want, you know, the audience still wants somewhere to live, don't they, for all this? Yeah, we're with him all the way through. Um, and 
you know what's really nice you know you see john wick <laughs> gets shot like 30 40 times doesn't he? he's wearing like a bulletproof suit isn't he <laughs> number three he's got a bulletproof suit and tie that somehow manages to protect his head at the same time but in this Sung Woo gets shot more blood you know yeah. like by the end of this sequence when everybody's down and dead apart from him there's blood pouring out of him from every single hole that's been shot into there's him a, there's a moment in particular where it gets cut down by like a semi-automatic isn't it and it loads about yeah. seven eight shots into him and after that it's just like it just rips into it's him like, no. it's yeah. grim but he still manages to kind of Take everyone out, doesn't he? Even though he's mortally wounded. Well, just about, because then we get um, uh, the the uh, arms dealer's pseudo brother. Brother, <laughs> yeah, cut, comes in and just kind of takes out the last few people standing, and then goes for Sun Woo. But I like as Sun Woo's kind of collapsing, he's he's firing his gun just up into the air. He's not even aiming at anybody. It's just this sort of last kind of uh, spasms through his body as he's collapsing and preparing to die but just i think just before that he makes the phone call doesn't he he tries to well he does make a phone call that's right so he flips he flips his phone open and you kind of it's blood starts dripping onto it straight away and you can't quite see who mm. he's calling but then you hear this female's voice so you let's believe it's um Hisu's voice but again i think this is a flaw with her character and probably her, the writing of her character is you don't i don't know he's has he got that much of a connection with her that he would use his like literally his dying last dying breaths and energy to kind of? I think throughout the third act, he's tried to call her a few times, hasn't yeah. he? And she hasn't answered. When so when Kang is with Hisu, her phone is ringing. I think we're supposed to believe that that's Sun Woo as well trying to get through right, to okay, her. Okay. And she and Kang is like, "Why don't you answer?" And she's like, "It's not important." But then you see, you, you actually go back to the, it replays a shot of her. In the recording booth that he's watching as well, it's enough of a connection for him to kind of revisit those brief moments that they spent together and replay them in his head. While we also get like leaves falling yeah. from branches overhead, and it becomes quite sort of poetic and symbolic, yeah. doesn't it? And I think shortly after uh, arms dealer's brother shoots Sun Woo and kills him, then we get our second kind of Buddhist quote. Um, which is about the uh, the beautiful dream that the apprentice has. And the master says, well, why are you so upset if you've had a beautiful dream? And he says, the dream was so beautiful, but it can never come true. And then the next shot is him drinking an espresso that we've seen right at the very beginning of the film. And then he sort of has this strange shadow boxing sequence where he's you know, just going crazy, isn't he, in front of uh, his own reflection looking over the city as the music starts to play in the background. He does the shadow boxing in the window, but then he dismisses it almost as if he's saying, you know, that's not me. Which which would yeah. tie into your theory, Have which I'd fail to remember, which would tie into your theory nicely if it had occurred before he took those guys out initially. On Wikipedia, it says that the... Um those opening and closing quotes are Zen Buddhist koans, which is a statement used in Zen practice to provoke the great doubt. So I wonder if, you know, if, if we were Korean and raised with Buddhist principles, whether that would have been a much clearer ending for us. Yeah, yeah for me, I always read it as just this kind of projection of the, the male fantasy, the um, male wish fulfillment of being able to say the, the cool stuff and to be able to fight like a kind of 
Korean gangster. You know, it at the end it just feels like as he's shadow boxing himself, that really that's his kind of biggest enemy. You know, he he may only be the barman or you know the coffee guy. He may he may only be a barista. You know, but he it he feels like he's capable of so much more. I think that's a, a pretty good um, reading of it. And it, like since you've you kind of said that, it's made me think that. I mean that's that's what I'm kind of looking at now, really. Which I didn't really, I, I didn't, I, I kind of thought about initially, but I didn't really lock into. But well, I what I really like about it as a theory is that it means you can forgive the film. It's kind of it's clunkier yeah. moments, you know. It, it it like you can get away with anything once you're in that that space. A little bit of research I've done on Korean cinema. Basically, I think it was kind of on its ass through the 70s and 80s and slowly coming back in the 90s but it was really only in the noughties that it found kind of its feet and its confidence and its voice and its style and i think all those i think jsa was 2000 and then i think there's just like a bunch of movies that come out in the next 10 years that really establish career as you know one of the most thrilling global cinema voices absolutely and a bit of sweet life firmly sits in there doesn't it as much as i like sort of ultraviolet you know i'm a big fan of like the raid films particularly second one but they haven't got that sort of they haven't really got that sort of emotional pull out that you you go in there for the spectacle there where i think something like yeah a bit sweet life has that it sort of juggles it you know it's got that balance which you know i really respond to and it's it's it, you know there's a there's a real craftsmanship as well, isn't there? And it makes me want to go back and revisit his his earlier films, to be honest. And so is this a bit of Sweet Life now that now that you've kind of seen it, a film that you maybe would go back to or that you would recommend? What yeah, think? I think so. What, what I base rewatching a film on is is exactly that. It, it like it is it got rewatchable moments? You know, is the moments that took you by surprise first time around that you're going to really dig the next time? You know. And I think it's got that sort of high sort of watchability factor, hasn't it? Like I said before, when people started talking about Korean cinema after Parasite won the Oscar, I was like, oh, have you seen A Bit of Sweet yeah. Life? Show your uh, credentials. I haven't seen everything that came out of Korea <laughs> in the last 20 years, but I've seen like you know, a dozen yeah. movies. I think it's, it's, it's properly exciting stuff. 